Two children are running across a field. Hurry up, Thou. Tikitene is making his last walk, yells one of the children. They pick up the speed and after getting over a small hill they finally see it. Nineteen people while chanting are moving a statue on the road and they pull a rope between them back and forth. The statue is moving forward as if it's going on an afternoon stroll. I told you, the gods don't move them, we do. Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens to the claim hold water to an archaeologist or are the better explanations out there. I'm your host Frederick and this is episode 27 where we will explore the lost worlds of alien visitations and this is recorded in a hotel room in um, the Czech Republic. If you notice any difference in the audio quality well we're using a different rig currently but we will be back to the original later on hopefully this won't be too noticeable at least but today we will explore Copan, Nemrodagi, Peru and Rapa Nui and could we have found a location for the Garden of Eden? Paradise on earth and the origin of humans? Well at least according to the Abrahamic faith and remember that to find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now, when we finish with our preparation, let's dig into the episode. So the episode starts out quite decent. We have some strange wording, but I think we can let it slide. In this first section, we will deal with the site of Copan, a site that Mayans have occupied since, well, the pre-classic period. The Mayan civilization consisted of city-state with a local, local ruler and alliances. And they share a common language, culture and religion, but still have their own variations and regional designs and architecture. Even if we sometimes see influence from, well, mostly the larger city-states trickle down to the other places throughout the Mayan civilization. And Mayan history is divided into five periods, archaic, pre-classic, classic, post-classic and contact. And these are later divided into divisions within the periods. Somewhat similar to Egypt, where we have the Old, Middle and New Kingdom with a subsequent periods of intermediate periods, showing that chronology within archaeology can be quite a mess. Unfortunately, we don't have a unified version of it. But the Mayan civilization did start roughly around 2000 BCE in the pre-classic period we mentioned before. And this period lasted until the classical Maya around 250 CE and the high point of Copan, where we spend most of our time within this early classic to terminal classic period. And the occupation of Copan can be dated back way back 
to 1400 BCE, and these have been accomplished through several excavation using different methods, such as random systematic stratified unaligned sampling and obsidian hydration dating, just to mention two of the ways we have used. Obsidian hydration dating might be new to you, and you might think that you can't date rock, or can you? Since obsidian is more uh, volcanic glass, it does have a few advantages compared to your ordinary granite when you want to date it. Due to its structure, it has uh, mineral hydration pro properties, absorbing and storing a fixed amount of water that evaporates within a fixed time rate. If the obsidian is unworked, it usually contains 1% of water. When this evaporates, it leaves a small rind that we can see in a microscope. And this dating method is limited. And if we want a more precise date when it happened, we usually need to combine it with uh, C14 or another dating method. And in these earlier stages of the site, we can also see some Olmec influences and how the site is slowly growing into a place of importance. But before we get into the classical period, we learn from the show that the Mayans were one of the earliest civilizations that created a written language. But before the Mayan glyphs, we have, well, the Olmec writing dating to around 900 BCE. And the Maya script is usually set to 300 BCE. Sometimes you feel that the show just say things that makes things sound older. Sure, the Mayan glyphs are earlier than, for example, the Viking runes, but compared to Sumer, Egypt, it's a very young script. It's among the older ones in Mesoamerica. For sure, but they, did, they don't really specify this in the episode. The translation of the glyphs is a captivating story. Maybe a little bit out of our scope at this moment. Let me know if you want us to revisit this. It's a story involving gatekeeping, saving manuscripts out of a burning building during World War II, a dramatic breakthrough during a conference. But after a lot of work, we could, in the mid-1970, read a script that the Catholic Church worked real hard to eradicate. It's a very beautiful system, and unlike the Egyptian hieroglyphs, gives an author a more creative freedom. They don't really look exactly the same, all of them. They have some uh, differences between them. And we can currently read 90% of all glyphs, which is truly amazing. The period this episode talks about takes place between 420 CE and 830 CE. So we're well within the classical period. And this classical period for Copan started with a rebranding by a ruler named Kinach Yachkukmo or Great Son, first Quetzal Makav. And we see a shift and the start of, um, of the only dynasty that we know about from the site. There were other rulers or ajas, but um, they are unfortunately unknown to us, at least before Yaks Kukmo. But uh, Yaks Kukmo was probably put on the throne here by Teotihuacan, even if it seems as Yaks originated from Tikal. And we have found the grave of this first ruler intact, so we are sure that this isn't some mythical founder we see in other location and the preservation is mainly due to 
how they built Copan. Instead of building new, they built on top of the older construction, and especially within the city center where all the plazas and temples were located. And haven't we had a lovely time discussing a little bit of Mayan history? So let's ruin this by start dissecting what we're actually learning from the show. After talking a little bit about the site and the Mayan script, we have Giorgio Sukalos join and talk about a couple of stelas found around Copan. And in most cases, these stelas are just stone slabs with text, often some pictures. But at Copan, they have a more detailed version of them and the ruler is depicted in more or less 3D. They took more like the statue approach of it. They really differ from the classical stela. According to Sukalas, he claims that these statues, quote, looks like some type of being wearing an astronaut suit. We will get into more of what they really depict here in just a moment, but I just want to highlight that we again have, I think this looks weird argument. And we, we have seen so many other times during the show. But let's hear what David Childress has to say about these statues. This is one of the curious dragon sculptures here at Copan, of which there are many. In fact, these very oriental statues would look right at place in China or some other oriental country. Some archaeologists believe that there are elephants on either side of this Copan ruler. So why would there be here at Copan such Asian motifs as elephants and dragons in a place in Central America that is so far away from China and Southeast Asia. Is there some kind of extraterrestrial connection between the Mayans and the Chinese and an origin for both that comes from the stars? Well, this clearly shows that both Thukalos and Childress had not spent much time trying to understand the Mayan artwork or even read up on what the texts have to say. And if you go to the website for this episode, I will have some examples for you of these statues so you can see them by yourself. But they're talking about two stelas called Stela A and Stela B. Very imaginative, I know. And these work of art depict the ruler of Copan named 18 Rabbit, or I'm going to probably mispronounce this. Waxalakajun Abba Kawai is the king who created these fantastic stelas with this new type of artwork or shape. The one mentioned by Giorgio depicts a young 18 Rabbit who seems to have recently descended on the throne. And look closely, you will note that the hand are in a very delicate position as we see in a lot of other Mayan arts. We also see several things associating with ascending to the throne within the Mayan tradition. We have the mat motif, the pop icon. A woven fabric associated with wealth and the elite. You can see this within the headdress, especially, which we also find there's braids of uh, serpent barge. We see the motif of death, sacrifice, and rebirth on the sides. Things that to the Mayans were clear signs of rulership. They are not trying to describe a spacesuit. They're trying to show that 18 Rabbit is, by blood, destined to rule. And on the stone, it literally plays Copan among the other important cities like Tikal, Palenque, and Calakmul. And Silla B, that she just claimed to have signs of the Orient, 
does not fare better when we start to examine it through the Mayan lens. We see 18 rabbit again, but uh, there's a different story going on on the on here this time. He's a bit older and wants to portray a different but an important idea. Here we see motif of auto-sacrifice. The Mayan rulers would perform bloodletting rituals to get in contact with their ancestors, mainly by cutting their tongue or their genitalia and draw the blood into a cup. The children's elephant is, in reality, the earth monster from which 18 rabbit emerges from the mouth of, crowned by two macaws, symbolizing the supreme royalty. The macaw bird is closely related to rulership and the gods, of course. And this statue is uh, about ancestors and again showing show symbols that would not be foreign to the Mayans. The script on the stones does not reference people from another place either. This stone is a way for the ruler to legitimize his rules. He has the right ancestors and therefore one who should make the blood sacrifice. And if you look at the other Stela that 18 Rabbit Commission, we see the same thing. They all incorporate this ruler in the form of different gods with a theme showing that he has the right to rule. Circulus and Childress basically argues that their pareidolia should be taken as truth without trying to disprove years of uh, accepted Mayan art history. Now they are limited due to the nature of TV documentaries. I know, but I haven't seen any attempts to explain why the conventional interpretation is wrong in their books either. Now, 18 Rabbits is one of the most famous adjas or kings of Copans, and he was an avid constructor and is viewed as maybe the greatest king and also the beginning of the end of Copan. After being on the throne for 43 years, 18 Rabbit was captured and beheaded by the ruler of a smaller vassal state, Corrigua, in 738 CE. After this, there was no more construction within Copan for at least 18 years, even if there seems to be a few attempts to get the town back on its feet, it was completely abandoned around 800-830 CE. The show then goes into how amazing the Mayan calendar is and how true it is to a solar year. And Mesoamerica did have a great fascination for calendars. The earliest known example is from San Jose Mogote, dated to 600 BC. Now this calendar is known as the sacred calendar and consists of 260 days, no weeks or months. Each day consists of a combination of a 20-day name and 30 number. So each day has a special name and then you add the number which gets you to a 260 days. And this 260-day cycle does not correspond to any astronomical observation. And it's more likely tied to the human pregnancy that lasts roughly nine months. So the sacred calendar was uh, later improved by the Zapotecs, who extended it, and it became 365 days. But you had these two calendars then working together separately. And the Mayan did not adopt the Zapotec version, but they kept the old sacred calendar and they created their own second calendar, 
more true to the sun year. And this is called Hab and consists of 18 months containing 20 days. And if you're quick with math, you will realize that you only get to 360 days here. This is because the Mayan viewed the five remaining days as unlucky and they shunned them in a 19th extra month that they didn't really acknowledge, but they just existed in some sort of vacuum. And the Mayans used a few more calendars, but we don't have time really to get into the gist of it here. And if you want to learn more, let me know and we can do a special episode on the Mayans. But ancient aliens question the Mayans' ability to look at the stars. And we hear this whole idea that the observation could not be the work of these simple people. Don't get me wrong, for working with naked eye astronomy and maybe at best a sighting tube, the Mayans did an amazing job. But there's nothing here that doesn't really require more than patience, a little bit of ingenuity, time, a lot of time, and just a little bit of math. And the Mayans could surely do the math. They even had a concept of zero. A little fun fact here that they actually based their number system on 20. But Philip Coppen says something quite strange here to close out the section. When it comes to the ancient Maya, their creation mythology invokes these legends, which say that somewhere just south of Orion's belt is this place where life originated from and came to planet Earth 112 BC, when the ancient Mayans said the gods came to Earth. So first of all, Orion's belt is a Greek star constellation, not Mayan. But the whole idea is rather strange, for sure. If we go to the creation story in Popol Vuh, we find nothing like this. We also find that the perceived star tape of the ver- this version of human history starts at uh, 13.0.0.0, or basically when 13 Bactuns had been completed. And this date is part of the long count calendar that, that's divided by the Mayans into Bactuns, which is 400 years, and then the Katuns, 20 years, Tuns, 360 not 65 days, and the Vinral's month, 20 days. And this start when humanity happened. So according to the Mayan, the start of humanity happened with, well, our calendar at August 11, 3114 BCE. I don't really have an idea where Coppens got the date from here. Maybe he's wrong. Maybe he's a bit out there. I'm not sure. I couldn't find it in my research at least where he really got this but from here we will travel across the globe to a faraway land don't worry we will return to mayans well one great thing that this show got to learn about some new site actually and this site happens to be just one of those instances located in the southwest Turkey at the Mount Nemrod is a mausoleum for Antiochus I. And he ruled a kingdom called Komagen that got its rise after the fall of Alexander the Great's empire. And the ruler of this kingdom were, like many other locations during this era, highly Hellenized or Greek wannabes basically. And we see this partly in Antiochus I's mausoleum, 
So this site has a couple of components. In the center we see a large tumulus. We have not yet found the burial chamber within it. And that's part of the issue with these types of graves. They would often need to be completely dissembled to be explored. And I for one think it's a good that nobody has done it, especially in the 1800s. But as technology evolves, it's just a question of when we will locate it. And we have a couple of terraces on the east, west and north of the tumulus. The northern one seems to have not been completed. Maybe the king died a bit too soon or something else happened. But on the east and west, there's a row of giant statues made out of limestone. And this statue was originally some 7 to 8 meters tall. That's some 22 to 26 feet for you Americans. But are today in quite poor condition. It's worse on the western terrace since it accumulates a bit of snow in the winter and the site is also near a fault line and some 2000 years of earthquakes have not been kind to these statues. But the statues we find on the eastern side are in a bit better condition. So these statues do in some way represent gods that we find on the eastern platform and we see Antiochus the first and we have the goddess of comedians probably represented by Tyke we have Zeus Orosmanses Apollo Mithras Helios Hermes and Artagans Hercules Ares and these are a mixture of Iranian god and Greek gods which also an interesting, it seems as Antiochus tried to blend the cultures that we haven't really seen in the past. And these statues has Persian clothes and hairstyle, but the Greek names and faces. But there's a few other details that the ancient alien theorists believe are evidence of uh, alien presence on the site. I will let the show set the tone here. One example of the advanced knowledge of astronomy that they had is actually the Lion horoscope which gives us a very precise date. We know that the position of the stars in the lion's body um, fits with the positions of stars of Leo given in a book of Eratosthenes, who was a Greek astronomer from Alexandria who wrote a book about the stars. The arrangement of stars on the lion horoscope represented the constellation of Leo as seen in the sky in July 62 BC, a configuration that wouldn't be visible again for 25,000 years. Further evidence of the exceptional knowledge of the stars was found in a nearby shaft that Antiochus built into the mountain. So this is not far from the truth, which is of course refreshing for this series. So there is a stone slab with a lion on it with a set of stars that has been ordered to be the constellation of Leo. And there's a few suggestions on what year it corresponds to up until quite recently. The date has usually been suggested to be 62 BCE and to be a commemoration of Antiochus' coronation. But there's some debate here if this is the correct interpretation. The star lines up on a few more dates, such as 109 BCE and 49 BCE. And in a recent article by Maurice Critch, 
I feel that he makes a quite compelling argument for the 109 BCE date that should correspond with Antiochus' father, Mithridates I's coronation. And there's a couple of reasons for this, but to start, Antiochus takes clear ownership of the statues he built at the site, except for the stone slab with the stars. Some pedal stones behind have text that seems to have been removed in the past and and with modern equipment we can read this removed text and it indicates that these pedestals was originally put up by Mithridates the first and the regular star depicts also indicated date is more likely to be 109 BCE and it also worked better with the calendar that they used but this is research published this year so it will be exciting to see where this go. The site is quite exciting. It has room for more research and things uh, are being published about it. Yet it's not too famous here in the West, but I think it deserves to be a bit more highlighted. But the show goes on and wonder why this was built. The idea of the coronation connection has been around since at least the 1800s, but they leave it out completely from the episode. Instead, we're faced with this question. During his life, Researchers believe Antiochus studied with a priestly sect of Eastern astrologers called the Magi, who were thought to be able to predict and even manipulate events based on their knowledge of the stars. You might uh, now scratch your head wondering if this is true, and the answer is probably not, and we will get into some religious studies now. So the term Magi is real, and connected to this part of our blue marble and it can be used for a couple of things. Herodotus refers to a tribe with this name for example in histories but we also see this tribe with names as Madi from the Assyrians and uh, Parsuvash among the Persians and in Greece magic could also refer to a charlatan who used a slate of hand to fool people or people who could interpret omens and dreams. And I think it's quite telling that the dream interpreted and the charlatan has the same word. But yeah, it also is the name for Zoroastrian priests. And from the show, it seems as they are referring to the Zoroastrian priests in this case. Just listen to Jason Martell here, for example. The Magi were renowned priests from the far Near East who had advanced astronomical knowledge. And it's well known that most of the astronomers from the Near East, specifically ancient Iraq, Sumer, recorded series of events happening in the heavens over hundreds of thousands of years. This information was kept on stone tablets held very sacredly and only passed down to the high priests. The location of Madai is uh, more toward modern-day Iran and also where we see Zoroastrian originate and prosper until, well, basically the Islam-Arabic conquest. But the Magi Martel is trying to tell us about, in this case, is more likely referred to, well, the priests within the Zoroastrian tradition. And even if they spend a lot of time studying the sky, their main interest was astrology, not astronomy. I know it's an easy mistake to make maybe, but astronomy deals with studying everything above the Earth's atmosphere, while astrology is, well, trying to tell the future. At first, the Magi were, well, a sort of caste within the Persian Empire. 
But as the Zoroastrian took over, they were incorporated within the faith as priests. And these priests started during the classical era to spread out towards Greece and Sicily. And this is seen in the works of Aristotle, for example, the astronomer Eudoxus, and other quite famous philosophers and astronomers from this era. And the Zoroastrian ideas is discussed by Greek philosopher and other learned people. So it would not be strange if a Hellenized king, such as Antiochus, has read and maybe even admire them to some extent. But if we circle back to this statue, we, we see that he combining Greek and Persian elements, but not in a way that would make sense for a Zoroastrian. Even if Ahura Mazda and Mithra are incorporated within the Zoroastrian faith, the perspective the statues are showing does not really make sense for well a believer in Zoroastrianism. And we see Aristotle, for example, struggling a little bit to make sense of the duality that exists within this faith. So claiming that Antiochus to be a priest would be quite far-fetched, even if he probably understood some of the ideas within this faith. But let's hear how the priests are connected to alien visitors. Today, we think that the Magi were magicians. And that is actually why we have the word magic today. But when I hear about magical powers, that raises a flag because magic as such does not exist. So were these Magi in fact in possession of some type of an extraterrestrial technology? Because according to the ancient texts, it was the initiates of each culture who were in touch with extraterrestrials. And it was the initiates who later became priests or magi. And here we have the according to ancient text claim again. And I have not really found where he got them. So, well, we're going to skip at least until Giorgio comes up with sources for once in his <laughs> career. But the type of astronomy this priest is was not really advanced. It looks all it takes. We're back again at this. It takes patience. It takes a clear sky and a tiny dash of math. But these are things that were clearly available to the people at this time. But it's good to know that Jordi at least does not believe in magic. And from here we switch over to the Jesus story. It is true that in earlier versions the three wise men were referred to as magi. And uh, I find this quite clever since the writers of Matthews, well, the only book where this story is found, are trying to cement that Jesus is the savior prophesied in, for example, in Numbers 24, 17. There is foretold that the star prophecy will show where the king of kings will be born. So if you really want to hammer in that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, what better confirmation that the best astrology practitioners and divination experts saw this and followed the star prophecy to Jesus. Remember that they also have a dream where they learned that Herod was going to betray them. 
again referring back to you know they're being experts on prophecy and to interpret the dreams skills that the magi were associated with within the greek worldview so these magi saw the star recognize it as part of prophecy and follow the signs that they could divinate coming to jesus and giving him the gifts that's usually intended for kings that way confirming that jesus was the right messiah all along And with the birth of Jesus, we will take our leave from the Middle East, for now at least, and travel back across the earth to Peru. And since we're in Peru, I think you more or less can guess where we will end up this time. And there's a bunch of wonderful cultures we could talk about, but we're again going back to the Nazca. Don't don't get me wrong, I have... Nothing against the Nazca, but uh, we have covered this culture in episode 1, 3, 5, and 16. So I'll offer a shorter version here. Hopefully add some new things that we have not covered in the past. Just to set the tone and maybe offer a little bit of a refresher for anyone who haven't heard the previous episodes. The Nazca culture was active roughly around 100 BCE to 800 CE. And they were mostly an agricultural society with some quite amazing pottery, to be honest. They were active more or less at the same time as the Moche culture. Neither of these had a written language, unfortunately, or at least that we have been able to find. So what we know about them is what we have been able to uncover with the help of archaeology. And we will get into why this is important in a moment. But the Nazca people are, of course, most known for their, well, Nazca lines. These lines come in all shapes, forms, and sizes. Some are only 30 meters, while others span some 48 kilometers. That's 30 miles for my American friends there. We are finding new ones Well, basically to this day, and with the help of drones, more and more have been discovered as of late up to 2020. I don't have uh, sources for later discoveries, but I would not doubt that there are. And if you have a source for some after 2020, feel feel free to send it in. So today we have some uh, about 1,700 known figures and about 800 of these are straight lines. These are, to be honest, an enigma to use their language, and we're not entirely sure what they were used for. It is some sort of ritual, most likely. Some theories relate to astronomy, while other things it might indicate where water is for pilgrims. What we do know is that they are quite easy to make. You can just scrape your foot on the grounds in this area and create a fine line that will be visible basically for ages. That's why people were quite upset when Greenpeace uh, decided to drive across the plains. That was some time ago now, but since we have found pottery shards in the Nazca styles and sticks, we, we're quite certain that they were made by the Nazca, and we have an idea at least on how they probably made them. So with a few sticks and some string, you can actually make one of these glyphs rather easy with just a few people, none of which really have to be high up in the air for this to work. There was some experiment some time ago where they knitted fabric from Nazca or in the Nazca style really, really tight, trying to use it to make a balloon. Now, 
It did succeed to most people's surprise, but uh, the happiness was quickly changed into panic since strong winds took the balloon some hundred kilometers off course. Now, before you write me, this, this study has been heavily criticized among scholars, and it seems to not have any anchor in the current understanding of the Nazca people. It wouldn't really make sense to them to fly to look at the glyphs since they were mostly dedicated for the sun. They were an agriculture society with a sun cult. It's more or less a modern solution to an ancient problem that's probably had an easier solution. It does not really mean that we should shun the idea, but something we should be skeptical about a discussion to have in peer-reviewed journals. Hopefully they can make a better case for it, but time will tell there. Now, the ancient alien claims, of course, that the site was used by aliens as a landing place. And we covered this in one or two episodes ago. The Nazca people were trying to imitate the runways that the alien used, of course. Note here that uh, there's an issue that, uh, well, first of all, the planes are really soft. Not great if you want to use it as a runway for your aircraft, spacecraft, uh, machines. Well, not at least without some asphalt or something more concrete. Secondly, it does not add up with how they themselves describe how their spacecraft works. They can move up and down and just land on platforms at Belbeck and Jerusalem. But here suddenly they need huge runways for them for taking off it. It doesn't really make sense and it creates a whole new set of questions. Are they, you know, rocket power? Do they use oil for these? Or there's some special race that landed here. I think we're overthinking this maybe currently, but yeah, we have a strong indication that this isn't an alien spaceport. The show doesn't really offer any new things to us at least, but David Childress do say something peculiar here. At Nazca and other areas in Peru, there are legends of sky people and gods coming down from the sky. Now, we do not know what they call their gods in most cases. We have found representation of them, such as what we have named them the killer whale, the spotted cat, and the anthropomorphic uh, mystical being. As you might note, we do not know as much as we might like, but the gods they worshipped do not fit the alien narrative, or maybe they suggest the aliens were killer whales or maybe cats <laughs> it would be something interesting at least their shamans appear to have used hallucinatory drugs in their practice especially the san pedro cactus which is represented in a lot of their art they also practice headhunting but there's a question of how much this uh, costume really related to their religion but note that we don't have any written material or surviving accounts of the religion unfortunately all this comes from archaeological excavations the research on the nazca culture is interesting and new things are discovered well if not daily at least yearly new theories are being investigated and none of them really support the ancient astronaut theory so far from the nazca plane we continue west out to a small island called rapa nui Some might be more familiar with Easter Island or Isla de Pascua. 
as it was named by Jacob uh, Roggeween in 1722. But the island has been settled since well, at least 300 CE. The name Rapa Nui is maybe not the island's original name, but started to pop up in the 19th century. The Pito de Henya would be more precise. Henya is traditionally translated to land and Pito to navel. But an alternative translation is end to this word, indicating that the name should be translated to world's end. The island is most famous for its statues called Moai, and these will be the main course for ancient aliens to focus on. And I will let the show set the tone here. How in the heck did they make these? Where did they come from? And how did they move them? Nobody has the answer. On average, they are about 4 meters, 13 feet, and weighing roughly 14 tons. It is true that we don't know as much as we would like about these due to the decimation of the Rapa Nui inhabitants from the seas and slave trade. Knowledge from its elders has been lost in past centuries, unfortunately. It would have been wonderful to have all that lost knowledge preserved. In in some sense, the archaeology of Easter Island is more of a salvage excavation, as some has called it. But this does not mean that we don't know how these statues were carved. You have to work quite a bit to ignore the evidence we actually have. If there's something you will find excavating the different quarry site is tools and tools and tools. During one of the latest excavations, more than 1,500 of these stone masonry tools have been found. And these, in its finished form, is called toki. They come in different forms and shapes and are made out of stone. Some are more elaborate and others appear to have uh, been made just to be sufficient for the work at hand and if they were not useful i hardly think they would spend all this time to create them in these large numbers but the ancient alien crowd again leaves all of this out from the episode to somewhat manufacture a mystery and the quarry are located at a couple of places on the island and the most important ones was ranu raruku So claiming that we don't know where they come from is also a bit of a manufactured mystery. But how did they move the statues? Well, that, my friend, are actually a bit of a mystery. And when I say mystery, it does mean that we do not have a single idea how they did it. The first idea would be to use wood. But as you might realize, there might be a bit of an issue there. The rampant deforestation of the island. And if you look at the island now, you see very little forest or tree, if, well, any. We also see rampant soil erosion causing issues on the island and uh, covering things, including the Mao statues with earth. This happened in a fairly short span of time when we look at pollen analysis found during excavations. But do you really need wood to move the stones? Well... Not really, even if it would be the most obvious tool for us, especially for me as a Scandinavian who sees nothing but trees sometimes. How did they move these large objects without having any rollers? One theory that seems to be quite sound is that they walked. This also fits with the oral tradition that did in fact survive into our age. I don't suggest that the statue now grew legs and moved on their own accord. No, instead, 
they used roped and uh, a prepped road. And these roads are still visible to some degree and we have them spanning across the island. The statues are also shaped at the bottom to facilitate this better. But you use the rope and at least two teams of people to rock the statue back and forth. These ideas were thought out by Leap and Hunt. And if you're going to this episode's webpage again, and uh, well, in the links in the show notes, you will find a clip from Natural Geographic. In it, we can see 18 people move the replica of the Maui statue. It's only a little bit shorter than the average, but uh, it's clearly showed that it was possible to move this large statue without rollers or woods. Now, the question is, of course, if this really was the method they used, and we don't know, unfortunately. We might never know, but it shows that we don't really need an alien levitation gun to move these around. And if we can figure it out today, so could people back then. But David Childers have another piece of evidence for us to look into here. You have to ask yourself, how could the Easter Islanders have invented their own writing without some other cultural influence? coming there would it have been ancient seafarers coming to easter island or perhaps even space visitors now what david is talking about here is the script rongo rongo that was preserved on a few pieces of wood staffs and even a few statues we have not been able to decode this script yet but from what we gather so far is most likely not a pre-contact script we do not see these in earlier forms or on earlier pieces than before the spaniards forced them to witness the signing of a deed of session in 1770 while the script is fully developed on the island it was probably inspired in a sense by the contact with spain but the text written was supposedly sung, possibly sacred recitation, or maybe even chance for procreation. But this was again lost to time, and hopefully we will be able to translate it one day. And that will be quite an achievement. So we know a bit too much to not be swayed by these claims from the show, but they have one last claim. Will it finally be the evidence for aliens we so desperately need now did at some point in the past the creature come which was birdman who flew in from somewhere did he arrive on this island and did he indeed live very much like a pariah did he die or did he take off again and is this what the locals keep this legend of this creature who came to them alive through myth legend and ritual coppins is describing a peculiar ritual that started towards the end times of the island civilization. But instead of, uh, you know, drinking a breakfast smoothie made of whatever you find in the fridge, like Schwarzenegger in End of Days, the inhabitants of Rapa Nui developed a new religion. As we have seen, the islanders have done quite some damage to their ecosystem in earlier layers. We see actually a lot of bird bones. At first, there's some 25 species in the earliest layer, and we see this in the garbage piles, of course. And towards what we might consider the end of the classical era, we see only one species left in these bones. We also see a shift in power from the ancestral worship and the glory of the clan. The power seems to switch over to the Matatua. These are the warrior class who... Uh, had a more painting name 
Tanaka Rimatoto or Men with Bloody Hands. We also start to see shard and broken bones in these layers. Sadly, these are mostly juvenile. There's also a complete halt in the construction of the Moai statues that uh, starts to get covered up instead. There are indications that uh, the statue under Ahu, the stone platform that some of the statues stood on, were still in some cases used, but their main focus has shifted to a new cult dedicated to the Manatura. This translates to Suti Turn and is referring to the lost seabird on the island. These birds has their refuge on a little island called Motiiti and Motinui. This is visible from the rim of Ronokau volcano. And the ceremony took place on from Orongo, ceremonial village made out of stone. And beside it there is cliffs leading straight down to the water. Once every year there was a gathering where representatives from the class competed in who could bring back an undamaged egg from the nest. The first to present an egg to elders was declared Tangata Manu or the Birdman, giving his clan the glory and honor for the year. This person then had to go and live in a hut at the abandoned quarry of Ranuraku for a year. I would like to close this section with a quote from Grant McCall describing this ritual quite well. It is not surprising that the Rapa Nui faced with an ecological crisis that threatened their entire social order, if not their very life should take the initiative to fashion a new religion more suited to their precarious times. Instead of a king from life, they opted for one elected by ordeal. Instead of many ancestors who descended from many ancestors, they proponed a single god, Makemake, whose image they carved in desert rock on the basis of few toppled figures and even around water holes. In the last part, we will talk about the Garden of Eden and how it's a, well, real place. It does start out as a quite reasonable discussion of its location. And um, one plausible place would be what today is the Persian Gulf. Now, it's one interpretation based on what's written in the Bible, but not as solid evidence as the show maybe wanted to be. We have Graham Hancock claiming that... During that long period, there were at least three episodes of very, very major flooding, when you would be looking at 30 or 40 foot rises in sea level, virtually overnight. Now, the sea level rise is a real thing that started after the last real ice age. In the show, we learned that this was some 170 feet of rise, or... 51 meter, but in reality, the rise was on average 150 meters or 500 feet or more in some cases. This sounds like a lot, and Graham Hancock and others use this as evidence for their great flood theories and whatnot. What's left out of this is the process is spanning nearly 20,000 years, and often the rise was about a meter per century, that's a meter per hundred years. Some period had a quicker pace of nearly 2.4 meter per century. Then we have Scandinavia that, after the glacier melted, had a land rise instead. 
Yeah. From the flood, we continue with the idea that the Bible in part is inspired by Sumerian sources. And since we have evoked Sumer, we must apparently bring up Anunnaki, a modern creation by Zachariah Sitchin. Well, the Anunnaki was of course not invented by Zachariah, but is part of the Mesopotamian religion. He merely invented the idea that they were space beings, claiming that the name translates to something like those from heaven came. The issue is, of course, that Sitchin haven't really shown that he, first of all, is capable of reading these tablets, let alone translating them. His translations are, of course, going against current accepted translation. This doesn't mean he's wrong. No, not at all. But it does mean that he has a lot of work to do to prove his point. Something uh, working against him a little bit here is that we do have the Sumerian dictionaries preserved where they themselves specify what their words really meant. It's a bit hard to argue against the, you know, original sources. But So we take the best current understanding of the language and we get the translation similar to of Prince Lesid or the offspring of An. The Anunnaki were a set of gods created by the sky god An or Anu and their creation differs between different culture and who worshipped them. Same for the creation of humans. This story differs widely depending on what source you're looking at. Is it a Gilgamesh and the Netherworld story? Or maybe the debate between grain and sheep? And depending on which one you use, you get a different answer to the question on how humans were created. So the idea that the Anunnaki created humans as a slave race in the Garden of Eden becomes a bit far-fetched here, to be honest. And on this we will leave Ancient Alien, for this time at least. But make sure to tune in again next time. Then we will perform mysterious ritual and see if the code to Ancient Alien is hidden in Catholic Mass. But till then, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify or to your friend at the trench. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast. You also find me on most social media sites and if you have comments, corrections, suggestions or you're just hankering to write an email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. There you find all the sources and resources that I use to create this episode. You also find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about these subjects that we bring up. And I usually link everything so you can easily find it if you want to read more. Sandra Martelor created the intro music and our outro is by the band called Tralskruv who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists will be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. <laughs> Ni tycker att jag redan är besatt Men jag skyddar mig för jag har foliehand
Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 